Hello, everyone. This is Typhoon Talks, brought to you by Typhoon Consulting, a boutique management consultancy headquartered in Hong Kong. And I'm Chen Yang, a consultant here with the firm. Since 2010, when the first robot advisor startup Betterment was founded, the past few years have seen the rapid expansion of robot advisors. James Early is the CEO of Upwealth, a cross-border advisory firm for projects related to robot advisors and AI. He used to serve as director of research and analysis for the Motley Fool. Today, James joins me from New York to discuss the impact of robot advisors on investment strategy. Welcome, James. Great to be here. Robot advisors, as opposed to the active management that a human advisor can provide, generally offer passive investments at a relatively lower annual fee rate, between 0.2% and 0.5% of assets under management. Do you think the rise of robot advisors means that active investing is dead? You know, Chen, this is a red hot topic. A lot of articles, a lot of interviews are done about this.、Uh, the more people do passive investing. The more opportunities are created in active investing, and I'll explain that. But first, let me just explain for the listeners who, who may be a little bit new to investing the difference between passive, active, and passive. Active is when you're actually trying to outperform. You're typically trying to beat some type of market index. And passive investing is when you give up. You say, "I'm just going to invest with the index," which is typically done through an ETF or, or sometimes with a mutual fund. And the, the passive investing, the appeal of that is that studies have shown that over time, depending on the time period, something like 80% of active managers don't even beat a passive index fund like the U.S. S&P 500. So passive investing certainly has a strong logic. You know, if, if these managers aren't beating the index, why not just buy the index? And, and a lot of people are doing that. So it does make sense. But there's a dark side too. Passive investing. Is a little bit communistic. It's sort of like a, a, a workforce union. In other words, the stocks all rise and fall together.、And、what I mean is, when a company is young, it rises and falls based on its merits. And if we look at the purpose of a stock market, of a capital market, it's to channel money from investors into deserving projects. I mean, that's the societal function of a capital market.、And、a lot of people forget that, but. But once a company has gone gotten big enough to get into the index, it's it's big, and now the only reason for investors investing in that company is that it's in the index, and that's kind of a dumb reason if you stop to think about it. In other words, yes, there are certainly many analysts still watching the company for its earnings, for its merits, but all the past investors are not. They're just investing based on the fact that it's simply in the index, and that creates mispricing. In other words, those companies are being rewarded or perhaps being punished simply by virtue of their their participation in the index. And so, the more we have people doing this, the more mindless the investing becomes. Hence, the more opportunities are actually created for active management. And and I'm ironically optimistic. The more I see people doing this passive investing. Right. So in 2017, the total assets under management by robot advisors is over 224 billion. And a lot of users are millennials who are tech savvy but less sophisticated at investments. And meanwhile, as a growing sector, robot advisor has attracted a large amount of VC capitals and investment banks' interest. For robot advisors, do you think it's better to invest in them or with them, or neither? 
Well, certainly with them, you know, VC, venture capital is a mix of the occasional, like, super visionary thought leader, and then about a thousand brain-dead followers. And a lot of those brain-dead followers have invested in these robo-advisors, you know, and I'm, I'm speaking more bearishly about the B2C robo-advisory. The B2B robo-advisory can certainly work. In other words, if you're making a robo-advisor model to be used by a platform that already has a lot of customers, yeah, I'm all for that. But this idea that, that Wealthfront and that Betterment did of going in, at least in the U.S., in, in Asia, it's a little bit different, but at least in the U.S., going in and, and amassing this big platform is going to be a lot harder. You know, if you look at the, the, the challenges, the fees are really low. The, the, the account sizes are low. The millennials are still kind of young. They're not that excited about investing. The trading volume is low, and that's kind of the point. And the average revenue for client per client can be something like U.S. you know fifty dollars to hundred dollars per year. Especially because to get those clients, these these B two C robo advisors are often waiving the fees on the first ten thousand U.S. dollars or fifteen thousand U.S. dollars of investment. And their customer acquisition cost is really high, Jen. Something like three hundred to in some cases a thousand dollars. For these, these per estimate, this is for these for these B two C robo advisors, and the the customer growth rates are falling. And, and some of these analysts think that the break evens could be something like fifty billion dollars in asset under management for these companies. So in other words, the VCs jumped in and, and thought, oh my God, this is a great model because it solves you know the problem of of removing human uh, effort you know and, and, and automate it just like any other technology company does, but that's not really the entire problem. It certainly can automate the investing part of the problem. It in no means automates the customer acquisition part of the problem, and that's just as big a part of the, the challenge of investing. So the VCs basically missed that point. And by the way, this is all in a bull market. Yeah. This is all in a bull market. I don't want to see what happens when the market tanks. It's going to get worse. So, I mean, all we saw is Wealthfront and Betterment come in, they demonstrated, they got the $5 billion relatively quickly, you know, five or six years. And all that did in the U.S., I'm speaking about the U.S. because this is kind of the, the, the vanguard of where I started. All it did was make the big companies like Charles Schwab, like Vanguard, like J.P. Morgan, wake up and see, my God, this is a big market. We got to be in on this, too. And even if it's going to cannibalize our business a little bit, we got to do this because otherwise these guys are going to take it away from us. So those guys got in quickly and in one or two years have basically blown past Wealthfront and Betterment. Unfortunately, Wealthfront and Betterment, I thought, I think they were hoping to be acquired by some big fish and that hasn't happened really, but basically the, the incumbents already have the money. Now for them, adding robo-advisor is sort of a neutral game, right? They're, in fact, it may be a little bit of a losing game short term because they're, they're probably downgrading someone from a, a bigger account to or a more profitable uh, account for them to a for them being the company to a cheaper robo advisory account but you know they're looking at it as a way to protect that business because they would rather make a lower fee on that customer than see that customer leave for wealthfront or betterment so basically all that happened is the the entities that already had the customers kept those customers and just shifted them. And we found that robo-advisors, instead of totally dominating the market, have been sort of a way for these companies to service kind of the less profitable customers 
that, that might have been a little bit too expensive to service by hand or by, by a personal advisor, they could just put those guys into a robo-advisor instead. In fact, in fact, that's what BlackRock did with Future Advisor. I think Future Advisor was a B2C business when it got acquired, and BlackRock said, you know, this is going to be a B2B. We're going to use this to, to let these other institutions service these less profitable accounts. And that actually makes sense. You know, so robo-advisors have not been nearly as disruptive as people thought. You know, they, they've disrupted a small segment of the market in a small way. I do think the future chain is going to be not, you know, totally robo. It will be augmented. It'll be bionic advisor. In other words, a human person will stand up, will interact. Uh, you know, there have been so many areas where technology has replaced that human person, but there's something about finance, and I think there's also something about medicine. Ironically, both of those are fairly connected to people's lives, and both of those, their, their well-being, I should say, both of those have a lot of ambiguity. So there's something sort of psychological, whether it's rational or not. There's something psychological that we, we crave talking to a human, and finance is still one of those areas. Now, it may not be forever, but it still is. So I think we're going to see still see that human advisor, but perhaps throwing clients into different robo-advisors to manage certain aspects, and that will still at least give them the benefit of that passive investing too. So you see a hybrid mode for the future? I think hybrid is definitely the future. I think we're already seeing that now. You know, uh, I think it was Wellfront, uh, this is a negative point, so I, I want to be careful about who it was, but I think it was Wellfront is already trying some sort of sneaky plan. There's a good article in Wired magazine. It's on their website as well. They're not telling you if you're a customer, but they're basically shifting you into a slightly more actively managed portion of your account, like 20% of your money gets shifted into this and with a little bit higher fee. And I think they're doing that because they're desperate, okay? They can't make the fees they're hoping. Uh, so they're even trying to move into kind of the hybrid model too, or so it's sort of a convergence. The, the originally automated robos are trying to hybridize up and the originally full service person to person uh, uh, you know, wealth management business are kind of going down a little bit. So they're sort of meeting in this happy medium. And, and there's no doubt that's going to be the thing. Right. Okay. And how about robo-advisors in the Chinese market right now? Well, okay, China, depending on who you ask, China doesn't really have a market in the first place. I mean, it has something like a market, but that's the first challenge. I mean, it's, it does have a market, but it's controlled heavily by government policy and by hurt behavior. And, and has, it's very restricted in terms of, of the investment opportunities. You know, Chinese investors, I joke, tend to have three types of assets. They have property, they have property, and they have more property, right? So they're not very well diversified. The Chinese stock market is seen as something for gamblers because Chinese stocks don't rise and fall based on their fundamentals the way they would do in the UK or in the US or even Australia or most other markets. But Chinese investors desperately need good stock market diversification. So the demand is definitely there. The problem is the government is desperately worried about the RMB going into a death spiral if it opens up uh, or allows more foreign currency conversion. I mean, currently, currently Chinese can send about 50,000 bucks in US dollars, 50,000 US dollars outside of China each year. But the, the state administration of foreign exchange often uses soft power to restrict that even further. So Chinese investors, you know, get some benefit from, from going into A-shares robo-advisory. And I, I think that's been a faster growing business than we have in the U.S., uh, partly because Chinese investors are just so new to investing that the, the growth rate of everything is going to be huge. 
Uh, the other thing is a trend that we're, we're not seeing is the incumbent dominance. I mean, ICBC just now got into robo-advisory, and we're going to see more of that. But it's not like in the U.S. where J.P. Morgan or Merrill Lynch or Goldman Sachs have such a big market share of the wealth. Uh, in, in China, the, the market is much less mature. So, you know, we're, we're seeing a little bit different trajectory. And I would ironically be a lot more bullish about robo-advisory in China than I would be in the U.S. It's still growing at like 60% or 70% year over year. And the last numbers I checked, these are old numbers, Chen, but uh, probably still directionally accurate. The U.S. had something like 250 robo-advisors. Of course, most of those are no-name wannabes that we're never going to hear about. They're probably dead now. But 250 in the U.S. versus like 15 or maybe 20 at most in China. So it's just a lot less saturated. China, I think, is the second biggest robo-advisory market now after the U.S. So overall, I am much more bullish on robo-advisory in China. I would become even more bullish by an order of magnitude if restrictions on overseas investing were, were lifted. Foreign robo-advisors serving Chinese customers would be a perfect service. You just mentioned that a lot of Chinese banks are getting into robo-advisors like ICBC. How do they get into robo-advisor development? Do they form partnership with small startups or do they develop their own robo-advisor services? You know, I think it's a mixture of both. I don't know what ICBC is doing specifically, but I, I, from what I've heard, them and, and, and frankly, just about all the big banks are, are trying to do that. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with a company, Pintech, that has its own Shuanzi robo-advisor. Uh, you know, they, I, they're probably one of the technology leaders to my knowledge. So I'm guessing the big banks are, are doing something uh, a, a little simpler than that. I mean, it's, it's amazing. regardless of what the ads say, the actual core of the robot, most of the basic robot advisor is very simple. You know, if you take a, a wealth front or a betterment survey, it's like eight or nine questions, and then it'll stick you into, I don't know, 10 or 11 ETFs. Depending, and it's the same basket of ETFs. Each person just has a slightly different percentage allocation, depending on how you answer those questions. So, I mean, Chen, you and I can sit down and in three or four or five hours basically have the, the groundwork of a pretty decent robo advisor. Now, now these guys would say that's sacrilege. These guys would say no way. But you know, it's it's still sort of true. I mean, everybody wants to think that their work is so brilliant, and so complicated, yeah. but the, the basics are not. So I think that the big banks are, you know, to my knowledge, you know, they're probably not doing anything super complicated. That's at least if they're following the U.S. pattern, uh, and they're they're largely relying on the fact that they do have some incumbent money, so they just need something to stick those people into. Yes, for the underlying technologies, robo-advisors should also involve some artificial intelligence and machine learning. So it sounds like it's still not mature enough at the moment. Yeah, you know, AI, I mean, AI is a big you know, topic overall. I mean, I just read this uh, Society General report. You know, it's a big bank and they do a lot of sort of consulting style reports. And this is a consulting type report just gushing about how AI was going to change absolutely everything about investment management. And you know, the only problem is that's, that's nonsense. I mean, AI will change a lot. It will revolutionize trading, okay? The, trade, the, the quantitative hedge funds are already using AI, but you know, it's, it's and also gonna automate investment research. There are a lot of logistical kind of research functions, and I know this because I was what we call an Excel monkey for many years in my early hedge fund days. You know, the Excel monkey, 
is sort of the low man in the company and you've got to like build these models and stick this number in here and adjust this number there. And you know, it's frankly not very exciting work and it's even less exciting work when you're tired and it's three o'clock in the morning and you have a lot more to do. So, I mean, that's, that's life. So AI will, will, will uh, get rid of a lot of those jobs, which is kind of scary for those people, but it's also, you know, tedious work that could certainly be done by a computer. But I think it's going to be a long time before AI can make real long-term investment decisions. I see AI more as a tool, not a replacement. It's going to replace a lot of people because most people or many people in the investment industry are, are basically tools in some way. But AI is really, it's wonderful at optimizing a closed system with known parameters like checkers, like Chinese Go, right? But AI can't anticipate macroeconomic events. AI can't necessarily anticipate industry strengths, at least so far, right? Yeah. And it, it definitely can't anticipate a crisis because each crisis is unique. You know, the, the U.S. or the global financial system is expert at preparing, at defending against the crisis that just already happened. It is terrible at anticipating the next crisis. So, I, frankly, I don't think AI can, can do that any better. I don't know that it ever will be able to. You know, it, it's... it's, it's confined to quant funds who are using it well, and they're raising good money, but I don't think it's going to dominate the world in the sense that, that people are anticipating to. But do you think in, let's say, 10 to 20 years, active management might be more vulnerable to being replaced by AI? Oh, no, no doubt, and, and not even 10 to 20 years. I mean, you know, two, three, four, five years. And, and you know, Chen, this is good because most people in the active management profession are in the profession of ripping people off. All right. You know, they, they, they come in not so much with wonderful value add, but with big confidence. And unfortunately, this, the psychology point that we talked about earlier, people want confidence. You know, they give money to confidence in people. It's, confidence is great in a caveman industry, you know, caveman type of system. Our brains are evolved you know, from hundreds of thousands of years ago. You know, if you're confident about where the water source is or where the animal herd will go, great, right? But stochastic processes, random probabilistic processes like investing aren't something you can be fundamentally confident about. So, you know, AI, I love AI for the ability to kick some of those people out of the system. You know, I love robo-advisory for the ability to kick some of those people out of the system, but and, and it will do that quickly. It will definitely remove a lot of jobs, but I, I still don't, I still see it as more of a bionic person, enhanced hybrid system where there's still a human decision maker, or at least the optimal results will come when there's a human decision maker using AI to to automate pieces and parts of the investment process. I don't think we're anywhere close to the point yet where we can just hand over the keys to some machine and let them solve all the problems. It's very tempting. It sounds great. And maybe it can happen in a very short-term trading type of strategy. But those aren't the strategies we want as investors. Those, those are, are strategies that actually devalue the market because they just eject a lot of volatility. I'm talking about this flash trading for people who are in and out of shares in less than a day. I mean, that's noise, that's garbage for people who are really long-term serious investors because that's missing the point of the capital market's main goal, which is to channel money from investors to deserving businesses. So Unfortunately, I don't see AI doing that yet, but I see it enhancing people who do that and certainly putting a lot of people out of work in the meantime. Absolutely. It has been a really good chat with you, James. Thank you very much for taking the time to join me today. My pleasure, Chen. That's all the time we have for today. 
Follow us on Twitter at Typhoon Buzz, iTunes and SoundCloud at Typhoon Talks for podcast episodes. Also, welcome to visit our website at typhoonconsulting.com for more industry point of views. We hope you will join us again next time. Bye.